have services at 11 o'clock and 2 o'clock with a potluck in between. I think we're all familiar with the drill in case some of those out on the radio or on the telephone have not heard. Uh, we've changed it from 10.30 to 11 for all the morning services and uh, 2 o'clock for the afternoon ones. Well, why are we here today, and what are we doing, and why are we not eating food and drinking water? Those are important questions for us to consider and to answer and understand exactly what it is that we're doing and why we are. <clears throat> we can go back to Leviticus 23, which we often do on God's holy days, whichever one we might be addressing at the moment. But in this case... Leviticus 23 and verse 27 says, Also on the tenth day of this seventh month there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation to you, and you shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire. Now we need to perhaps get some definitions here so that we know what it is that he is speaking of. Some of these words are not uh, words that we so much use commonly in English today. But what is an atonement? It is a removal of that which is unclean or fouls or is wrong or bad or sinful. It means becoming at one with. Uh, that's the basis of the word atonement. At one meant to become at one. And we, uh, as human beings, have a great uh, breach between us and God. And we have to become at one with Him. <clears throat> now, we practice this in our daily lives. This is a practice ground here on the earth. Uh, by learning to get along one with another and becoming at one with each other as human beings, as friends, as brothers, as family... Uh, in approaching God's kingdom. So, it is very, very important that we understand the breach that is between us and God and also the breach that we have among ourselves from day to day, week to week, month to month as we go through life. And that it is our job to do our utmost to be brothers and sisters together in peace and love, and kindness, as God reflects His love to the whole world by sending His Son to do it. So this is a day that pictures becoming at one with Christ, and ultimately at one with one another at the time of the resurrection. We will be imperfect in that until that time, but that is our goal, and that is our purpose. It is to be a holy convocation, that is, a commanded assembly. Uh, we are to be here at all of God's holy days, all of His festivals. Uh, it is a commanded assembly, very important, even as it is uh, to keep the weekly Sabbath in the same way. Paul makes it very clear it's not just a day of rest, but it is a day that we are to come together, to be together, to interact with one another, to learn to 
get along, not to give up and stay away, but he said, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together on the Sabbath. So, when God makes a holy convocation, he intends us to be here for his purposes. It is very, very important to him. And as we go into this today, I think we're going to see that this is a very, very important day in the plan of God and a very important day for us. He says, And you shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire, and do no work in that same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make an atonement for you before the eternal your God. We're not to be distracted by any other activities. This is a day to focus on becoming at one with God, removing any breach, any chasm, any problem between us and God and between us and each other for that, for, uh, for that matter. For whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in that day, he shall be cut off from among his people. Now, maybe we need to focus on that for a moment. God will disfellowship us if we do not become at one with him. The ultimate goal of his plan and purpose is that mankind should become God, that we be like him, that we be part of his family. And the only other alternative will be disfellowshipment or banishment from those who are serving God and who will have become God. Satan and his demons will be banished. We'll probably see that in Leviticus 16 here in a little bit. So, we are here to be here together in a holy convocation, a commanded assembly. And we are to be working at becoming at one with one another. So God does shun. He does disfellowship. He does ostracize. He does put out. He does remove that which is unclean and does not become clean. Now, we are all unclean, and we have to have atonement to remove the uncleanness. If the uncleanness is not removed, then we shall have to be removed. That's just the way God does it. He gives us every chance. He gives us every opportunity. He gives us space in which to repent. He's very merciful, very kind, and very long-suffering in that way. But ultimately, if the changes are not made the cleanliness is not attained, we will be banished, we will be removed. So, in this, he uses a very physical thing, food and drink, and says anybody who eats and drinks on this day will be banished, removed from, or cut off from God's people. So, it is a symbol of a spiritual thing that we must attain cleanness or ultimately be banished. Whatsoever soul it be that does any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. On other holy days, it's okay to cook food. He makes that exception, that type of work of preparing food. <clears throat> but not on the Day of Atonement.
You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. So the focus has to be complete and entire. Now let's get ahead of ourselves a little bit and understand that. This day pictures the wedding of the bridegroom, Christ, to his bride, the 144,000 faithful from all ages of man's existence up to that point. Now, when human beings plan their weddings, they really focus, don't they? They get all excited. They make all kinds of plans and uh, try to make it as special as they possibly can. Sometimes going way beyond budget and way beyond realism. Uh, we can get into a fantasy world even so far. We take it so far sometimes. Because it's so important to us and it is probably the most singular <coughs> important event that human beings go through on this earth. Uh, in terms of normal life, perhaps Passover and being baptized uh, is up there as well. And on a spiritual level, it has more meaning in that sense. But even our physical weddings are a picture and a type of that wedding to Christ. And therefore, they are a very, very important event in the lives of human beings. So we'll see the total focus that he requires as we go on. <clears throat> no manner of work. There'll be a statute throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of rest, and you shall afflict your souls. In the ninth day of the month, at evening, from evening unto evening, shall you celebrate your Sabbath. I took a little time... I think it was the last sermon, yes, uh, to describe why it is that the fall festival, the Feast of Tabernacles at least, has to come wholly after the turn of the season, the revolution of the year, as Exodus thirty-four twenty-two says. It's important that we do these things when God ordains them, not sometime we decide or we like better or the Jews think is more appropriate or whatever, but there has been, there have been at least a few and small groups and a man here and there who try to tell us now in these last 20, 30 years that uh, the day should begin in the morning and that we should count from morning to morning. The Sabbath should be kept from Saturday morning till Sunday morning. Uh, we don't do it from evening to evening. But right here, God tells us very clearly at the end of the ninth day, at evening or sundown, you begin to keep the Day of Atonement, and you keep it until the evening after. So beginning at the end of the ninth at evening, evening, beginning of the tenth, which also is that evening, until the, the evening that follows. So, God makes it very clear the day is from sundown to sundown. Not any other time that man might decide a certain scripture out of context seems to fit. Now, let's address this thing of afflicting your soul. In this particular command, it just says afflict your soul. It doesn't say go without food and water. So, does it mean that? 
what does afflict your soul mean? I mean, we could think of various ways that we could afflict our soul. We could get some two-by-fours in here and slap ourselves alongside the head with them, and that would certainly be an affliction. But is it the type of affliction that God expects of us today? Let's go to, did I mean Ezra or Ezekiel? I think it's Ezekiel. I put EZ down, that confused myself here. Ezekiel 8. And here I want down about verse 20, well, it might have been, I can't read my own writing. Maybe it was Ezra. Let me try that. Ezra 8. Yeah. Verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. So he says several things right there in that verse. A fast is a way, the way, in which we afflict our souls and to humble ourselves then and seek God's answer in our lives. To invite him to be with us, to guide us, to lead us. Not to go our way, but to go his way. A right way for us, he says. The way that we should go. So, if we are to become the bride of Christ, we need to seek his will, his way, the right way for us in every facet of our lives so that we might be a virtuous woman, a virtuous bride for Christ after his return. So here an example is shown of afflicting your soul and fasting in the same verse. Uh, Isaiah 58. And here we want uh, verse 5. Is it such a fast that I have chosen a day for a man to afflict his soul... Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the eternal? So here he says fasting and afflicting the soul are one and the same thing. But it isn't for us to feel sorry for ourselves. It isn't for us to uh, sit around in sackcloth and ashes. It is a fast... Verse 6, that I have chosen to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. And then he goes on to say that we are to share what we have with others, and be giving and serving and loving and kind to others. Now, we're going to see here in a few moments that the fast of atonement is to remove all sin from our lives. In Leviticus 16, he goes through that and explains it, that the high priest 
was to make an atonement for all the people for all their sins. So the Day of Atonement is very similar to Passover in that sense. Passover gives us the time when Christ died for all of our sins. So it is a very, very important day, a very solemn and serious day, and that is why we ask that at the Passover service we not visit and fellowship and do those things we do, that we normally would do, because it is a very solemn time picturing the death of our Savior for us and for all our sins. And not only for us, but ultimately for the whole world in their own time and proper resurrection. So it is a night to truly focus on what was done. And this day goes, in one sense, a step further in solemnity, because Passover is a beginning. It is what Christ started as a procedure toward salvation. It was the beginning point, or is, making it possible our sin be wiped away. But that is not accomplished on Passover day. We have six more days afterward, the number of man, six, to continue to put away the sins of man, ours. But we don't accomplish it. So we have the day of Pentecost in which the Comforter, the Strengthener, the Power came to give us strength to help us overcome. Then we have a long time between Pentecost and the Feast of Trumpets in which to work on that, to grow, to overcome, to change. Then the Feast of Trumpets comes, which pictures the resurrection of the dead or the change of those who are alive and remain, into spirit beings who will no longer, can no longer sin. So you see the progression here of the plan of salvation. Then we come to the Day of Atonement. <clears throat> and it is a solemn day as opposed to, in a sense, the Feast of Trumpets where the trumpet sounds and it's an exciting day and it's a feast day, but atonement is without food and water. It's a day of affliction because it pictures a time when we, as a sinless, totally spotless bride, meet Emmanuel, to marry him. He is perfect. Perfect in attitude, perfect in action, perfect in thought, perfect in emotion and reaction. Perfect in every way. And we are to achieve that. We are to become the same way to be a fitting bride for him. So any sins that we have not yet overcome as human beings, and none of us ever will completely be sinless until the day we are changed. But this day then pictures becoming completely at one, 
the breach completely healed. No difference between us and him, because he can only marry a bride who has become and made perfect. He says that the bride will be making herself ready. In other words, she will be cleansing her garments, preparing herself, working on her attitudes, her approach, everything about herself to prepare her to be a fitting bride for Christ himself. And we'll see when we get back there. But he said this day pictures removing all sin so that none remains in any form or any fashion that our garments will be completely white, spotless, the garments of righteousness. Does that require focus? He tells us don't do any kind of work on this day. This is a day not to be distracted by anything on this earth from our goal, our purpose, the plan of God, and why we're here. It pictures absolute perfection without any kind of sin. It's beyond our imagination. It's beyond our comprehension. But that's what we're here to picture today. Now, we're not going to achieve that or attain it on our own. It cannot be done. Because we are fallible human beings. We make mistakes with each other and with God. And we can't go there. We have to keep working at it. But we won't be perfect no matter what. And that's why we have to have mercy, forgiveness, kindness toward each other as God does toward us. That's the reason, he says, I'm going to judge you and reward you according to the way you forgive and show mercy to each other. It's that simple. I've preached that a lot over the last year or two because we have a long way to go in getting to the place that we're willing to forgive each other at least 490 times in one day for even the same infraction and not hold it over each other's head ever at all, not even to let it go to sundown. Wow. Do we have some work to do? I would say so. Now let's see. Now that I've gotten ahead of the story a little bit, let's go back to the book of Esther. Because I want to pick up a few more points here. Uh, here in uh, chapter 4, Esther 4, in <clears throat> verse 16. Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast you for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. So a spiritual fast is without food and without water. The Day of Atonement is only one day. Uh, in this particular case, Esther's life was on the line, uh, as well as her uncle's, 
and she decided to fast three days to implore God. So the idea of a fast is to humble ourselves meekly before God, as we saw there on the river of Ahava there in Ezra, and seek His will, seek His way, and bow our minds, our desires, our purposes and goals to Him. And hope for an answer. She even said, we'll do this fasting and then I'm going to go before the king and if I perish, I perish. I am putting myself in God's hands. And she wanted his attention. So she fasted three days and three nights before going there. Now that is not the longest fast in the Bible. Uh, We'll get to that. Well, let's get one more before we go there. Zechariah 7. The fasts of the months are addressed here, but there's a particular part of it I wanted to mention in this context. Zechariah 7, verses 5 and 6. Speak to all the people of the land and to the priests, saying, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, even those seventy years, did you at all fast to me, even to me? And when you did eat, and when you did drink, did not you eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? So he says, whether you are eating and drinking, or fasting, not eating and drinking, you are still doing it for yourself, not for me. God says we need to do it for Him and for the relationship with Him. It's not just so we can get what we want, it's so we can cause all our goals, all of our desires to be subject to His way, to His will, and to His purpose. Then we can expect positive answers. Now let's talk about Exodus 34. Exodus 34. There is a seemingly impossible thing back here that is mentioned in Scripture. Uh, Let's go down to verse 28. Uh, Verse 27. And the Eternal said to Moses, Write you these words, for after the tenor of these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And he was there with the Eternal forty days and forty nights, He did neither eat bread nor drink water. Moses went 40 days and 40 nights, and it clearly states, without food or water. Now that is beyond our comprehension. It is beyond possibly even human capability to do that. The scientists tell us we cannot go that long without food and especially without water. You only live so many days without one and so many days without the other. That argument has been brought up over the decades that I've heard. People say, well, it must just mean without food. And we can drink water on a fast. Diabetics have brought it up and so on. Uh, But I can't live without it. Well, Moses did something here that a human being cannot live without. Food and water for 40 days. 
Go to Deuteronomy 9 and verse 9. When I was gone up into the mount to receive the tables of stone, even the tables of the covenant which the eternal uh, made with you, then I abode in the mountain forty days and forty nights, I neither did eat bread nor drink water. Says it again. Now let's go to verse 18. After he came down the mountain and they were sinning, he threw down those tablets of stone. And what did he do? Verse 18. And I fell down before the Eternal, as at the first forty days and forty nights, I did neither eat bread nor drink water because of all your sins which you sinned and doing wickedly in the sight of the Eternal to provoke him to anger. He fasted forty days and forty nights, went down the mountain, saw the sin, threw the stones down, and broke them even as the people had broken them by disobeying. And then he did it again. What an incredible thing. 1 Kings 19. Verse 8. Now here's where Elijah had run from Jezebel. (laughs) It's amazing how we can go from one state of mind to another. Remember how he had stood before the over 400 priests of Baal and then wound up killing them? And then one woman said, I'm going to kill you, and he ran like a scalded bear. He was afraid of Jezebel. Anyway, that's apart from the story. Anyway, as he lay and slept under a juniper tree where he was out in hiding, we have lots of those around here. Behold, then an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baked on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head, and he did eat and drink, and laid him down again. And the angel came again the second time and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. You cannot do what you are about to be called upon to do. You need to eat again. Okay? The scientists tell us tell us it's impossible. Then what did the angel say? It's impossible. Eat again. And he rose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb the mount of God and came and lodged there. So God had a purpose here and Moses and Elijah both fasted for periods of 40 days and 40 nights without bread or water. Moses twice. Now, what about Christ? In Luke 4, verse 2, I won't turn back there, it's very brief, but it says that he went 40 days without eating. It doesn't mention drink uh, in Christ's case, but I would have to assume that it was both, without food and water, Because that is what had been required of Moses, and it is what had been required of Elijah. So Christ would not do less than what had been required of them. 
even as He does not ask us to withstand any temptation or any situation that He did not Himself withstand. So, I am quite sure that He went without food and water. We have, in the end time, types of Moses and Elijah coming back. I don't know whether they'll be required to go 40 days and 40 nights without water, but uh, that's a possibility at some point. Who knows? Maybe that's been done, and now since Christ has done it, that won't be required and requested of them. Uh, that would be a tough one. And it would appear impossible. And if you think it was bad back then, uh, consider now the heavy metals in our bodies and all the toxins and all the junk that we have and going without food and water for any extended period of time begins to release all those. And we probably all have enough <coughs> uh, poisons and toxins within our bodies right now to kill us if they were all released. That's why they go through all kinds of things to try to remove those things from our bodies. Let's go to Mark... Uh, I think it's, is it 10 I want here? Yeah, Mark 10. Let's go to verse 23. Mark 10, 23. <clears throat> and Emmanuel looked round about and said to his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Now, anybody has difficulty entering the kingdom of God, but it is particularly hard for rich people. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Emmanuel answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, or beyond belief, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? If it's that difficult, who can do it? And Emmanuel looked upon them, looking upon them, says, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. So getting into the kingdom of God is impossible for men, rich or poor. It's even harder for the rich who trust in riches rather than in God. It's just harder to trust when you trust in something else. So, us getting from here into the kingdom of God, of ourselves, is impossible. We cannot do good enough works. We cannot go without sin. We cannot be perfect, which is required. And even sins we committed ten minutes or yesterday would kill us. The wages of sin is death. Without Christ's sacrifice, without His atoning blood, our sin cannot be removed, period. So we look to Him. And it may be impossible, and may have been then, without God, to fast 40 days and 40 nights. 
But with God, all things are possible. It should be possible to do that if it's possible to go from being a human being changed into God. That's an even bigger task. And it can't be done without God's help. So God calls upon us to afflict our souls and do without because it does what? Afflict, there in Leviticus 23 and the other places it's used, is from the Hebrew word anah, which means humbled, bowed down, meek, or oppressed. We oppress ourselves without food and water in order that we might become humble and meek. You notice if you fast and don't have food and water, you don't have as much energy. You don't have as much strength. You don't have a lot of desires that you might have otherwise when you're at full strength. You're a little quieter. You're a little more introspective. Not quite as likely to just run off and sin when you're so hungry and thirsty you could care less at the moment. It's done that we might begin to understand how much we depend on God. Most people think they depend on three meals a day. Most Americans cannot even comprehend going without food for a day or water for a day. They've never done it, and it's beyond their comprehension or, com- or capability of even thinking. Can't be done. But it can. So we are here to afflict our souls, and we do it by fasting without food or without water for 24 hours for a particular point. Now let's go back to Leviticus 16. I've been threatening to ever since we started today. Leviticus 16. Because there's much here for us to understand in the spiritual realm from what is said physically and done here. (coughs) Here, after the death of Moses, he spoke to Moses after the death, excuse me, of the two sons of Aaron when they offered before the Eternal and died. That's in Leviticus 10, where they broke the law and God struck them dead. Interesting way to open this passage. I don't know that I ever thought of that before. Why does he remind us of that particular event? Because as I said before, this day pictures a time when all sin will be removed. And if we work on this day, do anything contrary to the spiritual and the focus of being like God and removing the breach between us and Him then He will remove us and cut us off from His people, from His bride, and from Himself. And He used that particularly particular example to begin this chapter. He had removed two. They dropped dead because they had broken the law of God. So he introduces a very serious passage here with a very serious example. I think that says a great deal. And the Eternal said to Moses, Speak to Aaron your brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat which is upon the ark, that he die not. 
In other words, this was only to be done once a year, as he will explain. It was not to be done frivolously. It was not to be done every day or every week or every month. This was a singular event that had great importance attached to it. So it could not be taken lightly. If the high priest himself tried to do this any other day of the year, he would die. It would have been presumption. And presumption is as witchcraft. We approach God on his terms. We approach marrying the king of the universe on his terms, not ours. We only picture the marriage of the Lamb one day out of the year. The day that he has designated to picture his marriage to his bride. Now we can go through it in our own marriages because they are a type of this and learn through those relationships how to get along, how to love one another, how to be loyal, how to be faithful, how to be true, how to be all those things that we are to be to God with each other and our human mates. So there is a type there, and that's a daily thing. But this is something that these daily types culminate in. Something that is the most important singular event planned in the universe today. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So he says, don't come without offerings. <clears throat> now we do them with monetary offerings, and he tells us not to come on any of his holy days empty. That we are to bring a gift to God. That's something we are to do without fail. So he was to come with a sin offering and a burnt offering. Our monetary offerings are a type of that. They have spiritual significance. That's why he tells us he loves a cheerful giver. It's not something that we are to do with any kind of a, a negative attitude. It's something we're to do cheerfully because we understand the importance of it that Christ died for our sins, that only He can remove our sins. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and He shall have the linen breeches upon His flesh, and He shall be girded with a linen girdle, and with the linen miter shall be attired. These are the holy garments. Therefore shall He wash His flesh in water and put them on. So the type is here of what we read in other places. I won't go there for sake of time, but the holy garments, the white garments of righteousness, without spot, without blemish. He was to put those on, and he was to wash in water. Water pictures the Spirit of God, and it pictures true doctrine. We are to wash ourselves and be clean in the teaching and the truth that we hold and in how we conduct our lives and to be washed in the water of the Word. 
Because it cleanses us. That's why we read the Bible regularly. It cleanses us. It cleans our minds. So, these physical garments had spiritual portent. And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. So he was to be sure that he made atonement with God for himself and his household before he came and made offering for all of Israel. Even as Christ, as our high priest, came and lived a perfect life and did not have to atone for his sins, but for all of ours. And Aaron had to do the same thing. Now, as a human being, I have to do the same thing before I come here to speak to you. I have to ask God to forgive me and cleanse my tongue and my mind and be sure that what I say reflect the words of God. Because these words are important for us. These words are about eternal life. These words are about forgiveness. These words are about marrying the Son of God. So we want to be sure that we wash these words in water and put them on and that they're good, clean, sound doctrine that they're what we need to understand and know and believe. <clears throat> and he shall take the two goats and present them before the eternal at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the eternal and the other lot for the scapegoat. The Hebrew word is azazel. It can mean departure or leave or one who went himself or went his own way. Now, we have to understand that a choice has to be made, and that's what this is talking about. Satan rebelled against God, went his own way, and departed from God. And he became the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air who deceives the whole world. Now, Christ came to qualify to displace him. He has not yet done so. He has met all the qualifications, but he has not come to rule the earth yet. He has called a few to learn his ways, to learn his truths, so that they might help him in the future take control of the world and teach it in right and correct ways. But you and I, then, are faced with choosing between the goats. Now, the goats in this case are not necessarily bad. Realize that he told us even at Passover, you could take a kid of the goats or a lamb of the flock. The Passover could be a goat or a lamb. Now, it is Christ who sanctifies one or the other. And in this case, he took two goats because one will have departed from God and the other represents the sins of mankind which are in rebellion as goats tend to be selfish and have a mind of their own in a sense more than sheep tend to do. I think that's why he used two goats in this case. 
But we have to be making choices every day between Satan and Christ. Even as the high priest here had to make a choice and send one of these goats into the wilderness and offer the other for the people. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the eternal's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. God is going to make his will, his way known. Which do we follow, Christ or Satan? I think God has made that pretty clear to us. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat or the azazel shall be presented alive before the eternal to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire off the altar before the Eternal, and his hand full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil. And uh, then he does this, that he die not. He goes on to, to talk about the details of it, which we won't spend a lot of time on. But God brought the Azazel forward to make a decision on even as Christ in Revelation 20 is going to take Satan by the nap of the neck and cast him into a lake burning with fire and to be bound eternally. Well, he's to be loosed for a short while to the end of the millennium, but other than that, he's going to be chained forevermore. So, our sins are confessed upon him. Not forgiven by him, but he is held accountable for a great deal of what has gone wrong with human beings. You don't think he had a big hand in it? Just go back to the Garden of Eden. All it took was that long. And he had us going the wrong way. And we still, today, as we are here present before God in this holy convocation, are far short of being like Christ, whom we are told to be like. We still tend to think like Satan. We still tend to be corrupt and to have fleshly, carnal, human desires, selfishness that are contrary to God's way. We will put ourselves first in most circumstances. We will give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We will look at ourselves as perhaps above the rules or above the law. Not anybody else. We won't cut them any slack, but we'll cut ourselves some. We are selfish to the core. And that is why, another reason why, this is such a very important day, is that a choice has to be made between Christ and Satan, and we have to make that choice every minute of every day. Verse 15, Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring his blood within the veil, and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, and because of their transgressions and all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. So this day pictures... An atonement made through Christ for all the uncleanness and the sins that we still have. 
And we referred that to that, I think, last Sabbath uh, about Haggai and how he says his people are unclean. Even in the end time, just as God is beginning to stir and bring the people together to finish the work, we still have uncleanness to deal with. And it is important that this be accomplished before the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles pictures the reign of Christ for a thousand years on the earth with peace and safety and happiness for all and people not being allowed to sin. If they try, someone says, no, 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 don't do that. Do this. Be more controlled than there is today. And we are to be the bride of Christ. Those will be our children. And we will have to rear them according to God's ways so that when they are old, they will not depart from it. So it's important that if we're to be the bride of Christ, we need to be the perfect mate, the perfect wife, the perfect mother for the children of this world. So the uncleanness has to go. Verse 17, And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goes in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. And Christ is capable of doing all three of those. And he shall go out into the altar that is before the eternal and make an atonement for it, and shall take of the blood of the bullock and of the blood of the goat, and have put it upon the horns of the altar round about, and sprinkle of the blood upon it with his finger seven times, and cleanse it, and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. Remember how I pointed out there in Genesis how he says, don't even touch the world, much less imbibe of it. And here... He's not only to make atonement for the people and all the sin, but to wash the altar and wash the horns and cleanse everything so that whatever you touch has been cleansed. And if, you, if it has not been cleansed, don't touch it. That's why we cannot be friends with the world. That's why we cannot go out in the world and mix with it without being tainted by it. Now, we can go out and work within it, and some have to, but there is the danger of being tainted there. Because you are with the world, around the world, and their attitudes, their thoughts, their expressions, their habits will tend to rub off on us. So even though we may be required to be in the world, we, as God said, are not of the world. So we need to be careful that mentally, emotionally, we don't let the world touch us. That doesn't mean we should walk around like this and not shake hands with anybody or touch them. That's not what it's referring to. It means don't let it touch your mind, your emotions, your heart, because those belong to God. Christ did eat with the Pharisees at times. He did mix and mingle with the world to some degree, but his friends were his apostles and disciples. So we sometimes have to mix and mingle, but he did not let their attitudes and their thoughts touch him. He did not let it affect him. So he tells us, go you therefore and do likewise. 
Verse 20, And when he had made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of a timely man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities to a land not inhabited, or a land of separation, it says in my margin. And he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. Now that is a picture of Satan. Some people try to say it's of Christ. No, Christ died that our sins be removed. He does not bear any guilt for our sins. He has no part in tempting us. It says in, is it James, that he tempts, does not tempt any man. No, the guilt of our sins are confessed upon Satan. And he is set out and separated and cut off from the kingdom of God that he can no longer influence. That will be done with Satan. So this goat represents going into a land of separation or uninhabited or wilderness where he cannot affect those that are of God. That's why he tells us not to eat or drink or work, because if we work on this day, we will be cut off, even as Satan is going to be cut off. So he bears the guilt for tempting us, for leading us into sin, for causing Adam and Eve to sin, and causing each and every one of us ever since to sin. That is what is confessed upon him, is the blame, the guilt. Our sins are removed, and we no longer carry, then, our responsibility, because we do have a certain responsibility in our sins. We can't always say, the devil made me do it. Now, he may have had his hand in it, but they are the ones who reached out and touched and took. And Satan can tempt us, but we are the ones who make the final decision. So, his part, which he did, on purpose to defile us, is cast upon him. That blame is carried away. Now, our sin then is removed, and thereby what blame and what part we had in that sin is also removed so that we do not have to suffer the penalty of it. Satan takes the blame, Christ took the penalty. That's the difference. So we do not have to die for our own sins. This goat did not die, nor will he have blessing in the kingdom of God. He will be cut off. Okay, and Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation, verse 23, and shall put off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. We will leave this day, and we will sin again. Every last one of us, in one way or another, will sin again. Now, those holy garments, then, are to be reserved for the marriage. 
We're not to, in that sense, wear them as everyday things. We have to be dressed for the marriage. In the meantime, before you get to the wedding, you wear clean clothes, don't you? Or we should. But you don't wear that wedding garment every day. Then it would become casual, frivolous. We are to be cleansing ourselves. We are being to be preparing ourselves with white garments. But we will come that day before the throne of God, having been changed from mortal into immortality on the day of trumpets, and be assembled on the sea of glass before the throne of God, wearing the spotless wedding garments reserved for that day, in which we will have become spotless. Today we are not. Then we shall be. Let's go on down to verse 29. And this shall be a statute forever to you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourns among you. For in that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the eternal. We have two days set aside showing us being cleansed within the year. Passover, when Christ's sacrifice was offered for all our sins. And perhaps in one sense, because it's the culmination even more solemnly and more soberly, the Day of Atonement, which pictures the time when we will never again sin and never again need a Passover, because we will have been made at one with God. I would say Day of Atonement, in one sense, in that perspective, is the most solemn day of the year, even beyond Passover in its meaning. Passover offers forgiveness of sin. Atonement confirms that it has been accomplished and will never happen again. What a day this is. When we are married to Christ on the day that the atonement pictures, we will be a perfect bride, a virtuous woman, Never ever to sin again. It shall be a Sabbath of rest to you, and you shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. And the priest whom he shall anoint and whom he shall consecrate to minister in the priest's office in his father's stead shall make the atonement and shall put on the linen clothes, even the holy garments. He summarizes it here, says it again that this Day of Atonement is about the holy wedding garments. And he shall make an atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make an atonement for the tabernacle of the congregation and for the altar, and he shall make an atonement for the priests and for all the congregation. Everything has to be cleansed. Everything. All sin put away. Or banished. And this shall be an everlasting statute to you to make an atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did 
as the Eternal commanded Moses. I think I've pretty well covered what I wanted to, uh, with the exception, time is getting short here. But just for a moment, Revelation 14.4 says that the 144,000 gathered there are the first fruits of the Lamb. Christ, the first fruits, or first fruit, and those who become first fruits when He returns. No more, no less. The bride is 144,000. If you go back and read in chapter 21, verses 9 through 17, it shows that the walls of the heavenly Jerusalem were 144 cubits high. The New Jerusalem, it says, is the bride. And the dimensions there throughout show the twelve tribes, the twelve apostles, their names, the dimensions of that heavenly Jerusalem. I saw coming out of heaven the bride, the heavenly Jerusalem. So, the bride consists of 144,000 people. They are represented by the wall. The wall, as defined in other scriptures and in Revelation 21, represents that protection between God and anything else. In Revelation 21 there it shows that once that holy city, that bride with the Father and the Son come to this earth, nothing dirty, nothing defiled, nothing sinful, nothing that is not perfectly clean will be allowed within that city. So it shows there again that we will be, at that point, perfect. We will not want to sin, and we will not sin. We will not make any mistakes, even social slights. We will not have any wrong thoughts. That city is going to be holy and entire forevermore. Now, I'll refer once again back to Isaiah 58, we read part of it today. But it says those who humble themselves and aren't doing it for their own purposes and remove sin, break every yoke, and give what they have to others in need, which is what we're supposed to do as a bride of Christ, giving to those in the millennium, will be the repairers of the breach. It is us sitting here today on the Day of Atonement, who are fasting, praying, afflicting our souls, and humbling ourselves before God, that He might fill us with His Spirit, that He might work in our lives and show us a way for us and our little ones, as He put it in Ezra, to guide our feet, into the paths of righteousness, so that we can be the ones who heal the breach between God and man. The, the breach between God and Satan is apparently unreconcilable. It cannot be fixed. But the breach between man and God can be fixed. And that is what we are here to be a part of.
So be sure that as we fast, we're not just hungry. Be sure we're not fasting and praying that God bless us with a better job or a job or better health or whatever it is at the moment we feel we have need of. We're here on a day picturing the removal of all sin from all Israel, all sin from this congregation, all sin from each and every one of our personal lives. That's what we're here for today. And it comes on a day that is only once a year that pictures the time when that perfection will have been achieved. And the breach between us and our prospective husband and father is completely healed. And there is no variance, there is no turning, there is no difference, there is no shortcoming, but we will have obtained perfection. And without Christ, this is impossible. With men, it cannot be done. But with Him, it is possible. So we come here today to rehearse it, to remind ourselves that that's what we're here for. And we need to be healing the breach between us and God so that we can be then used to heal it between God and the rest of humanity. This picture's the wedding of the Lamb and us as the bride.